Hey everybody, it's Ron from the Nerd Life Crisis Podcast Network, here to talk to you today about SpinWiz Comics. SpinWizComics.com is an indie comics discovery platform. It's designed to help comic book readers find new content, with over 60 publishers and over 400 different comic titles to choose from, and growing every week. Most of the content right now is free to read, but there are options available to purchase PDFs and support creators you read the most. And right now, as part of the promotion, IB Comics is offering the first four issues of Grace, free to read. And for all you music fans out there, the first 28 pages of Legba's Juke Joint Volume 1. You can read all of these for free at spinwizcomics.com. So if you're a content creator out there, check it out. It's a no-hassle platform whose core goal is to help with awareness, to essentially take your comic book and put it out there for new readers. It's as easy as uploading a couple of PDFs, toss them into a Dropbox or Google, and within a day, your stuff will be online and available for purchase or for new readers to check out. SpinWizComics.com. Check it out today. Welcome to Fix It in the Mix, the podcast about the real music business. As always, I'm your host, Chris Thayer. Today, I'm sitting down with Greg Tinsley. Greg, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. We're actually on location at uh, Greg's shop. Greg is not only a very talented musician, he also um, repairs and um, upgrades and, and works on all sorts of uh, musical instruments. Um so yeah, man, I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm on the new uh, Zoom Live Track L8 recorder I just picked up, so hopefully this will work out okay. Uh, I guess we will find out because you are officially my guinea pig on All this. Right. Um, so why don't we start with uh, kind of the question I ask everybody, and and the answers are so varied is why I ask this every time. Um, music as as a career or as a life. Um, seems like you don't choose that it sort of chooses you like no one in their right mind says i'm going to be a musician for the rest of my life knowing what they know about the music business so i guess the question is how did you get sucked into doing anything in music whether it's you know music playing it or working on instruments or whatever i decided when i was about 10 years old i wanted to be a musician play guitar okay used to watch the monkeys Right, right. TV. the old TV show. Yeah, Glenn Campbell show, all the shows and stuff. And I, that's just it. That's what I wanted to do. You know, it appealed to me. So when I was twelve, I started playing around ten ish with a really. Uh, uh, I started out with a Green Stamps guitar that was made out of plastic. Green Stamps. Yeah, you got it from Green Stamps. Really, a plastic guitar with plastic strings. That's crazy. I haven't heard that in a long time. Yeah. Green stamps, dope. And then I uh, I made my way up to a Opus acoustic guitar, really, with the strings that were just way way off the neck. Of course, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did that for a while, and uh, I took music lessons for for six weeks because yeah. I lived in Southgate at the time. I grew mm -hmm. up in Southgate, went to Southgate High School. So we were taking music lessons at this local music store, and it was right. a six six week introductory class, and then they put you into private lessons. Okay. Well, at the end of the six weeks, they told my parents, "You have to buy this Gretsch." Of course. And it was like a four hundred dollar Gretsch what in nineteen seventy. 
And uh, my parents just said, no way. Oh, yeah. And they just jerked me out. But I really wanted to play, so I started learning chords and stuff on my right. own, doing it. Dude, that's shady business. That's some crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah. I've never heard anything. I mean, that sounds like these modeling gigs where it's like, They'll say, oh, you, you have what it takes. Come on out here. And then it's like they give you the runaround. And it's like, oh, yeah, so now we're going to give you some modeling, le- modeling lessons. It's only like 200 bucks a lesson. Like, that's totally what that was. Yeah, I mean, at least $400, you got six $400 for a guitar yes. for a guy that's been playing six weeks is a lot of money. Well, especially I'm, for my parents. I'm you thinking buy a car right, back then. Right, right. I yeah. mean, dude, I have hardly, most of my guitars are in the 400 to $500 range. And yeah. that's today. Right. You know, that's insane. Like, I wonder how many people actually fell for that. That's pretty bizarre. I don't know, but it ended my lessons. Well, yeah. <laughs> so you basically were self-taught then, right? Yeah, I was self-taught uh, from then on. And, uh, you know, I started learning out of books and, and did some... Uh, I started playing in bands when I was 12. Oh, okay. What kind of music? It was classic rock. Okay. Actually, what it was was... It uh, was rock at that the point. first band I played with... Uh, my sister's boyfriend's older brother's older friends had a band. Of course. And I was 12, but I could kind of improvise, and none of them could. So they started bringing, they brought me over, and I, I was That's funny. I was playing and drinking and of doing course, all kinds of, of stuff. Of course. This was, uh, this was when? This is like 1970. I was going to say early 70s. That sounds yeah. about right, man. Yeah. Oh, very cool. So do you remember the name of that band? No. Nothing's gone. That's God, funny. I, I kind of laugh at um, everybody's first band names because they're always something horrible. Oh, we were. I was in a band. My first band band. It was Ricky Duty and uh, Ricky Duty and uh, Joy Beato. Okay. Lucas Beato's younger brother. And, and uh, I forget who our drummer was. Um, but uh, we did a, at the Allen Theater. We did a matinee gig at the Allen Theater. Okay. And uh, we were warming up for his older brother's band. Really? So we didn't have a name. So he just looked at his brother's hair, and he was like an Italian kid with like a he tumbleweed. Tumbleweed. You know, that's a band. Tumbleweed. That's actually not a bad name for a band. Yeah. Um, so kind we of were, in hindsight, we were tumbleweed. That's good, man. We got to the gig. We're all raring to play, and our singer got stage fright. Oh no! When he got to the front front door, and he just like hightailed it really yeah i've never heard of that actually happening it happened that's so we crazy. had to just kind of like play without him wow and how did it go uh we got through it you know yeah all right <laughs> i had i had a gig uh when we played up at cal state and we went all out for this thing like we played in the recital hall and it was we had all these people uh opening up and then our singer decided that was the night he was gonna try acid and he like freaked the fuck out and was like he came out sang a few lines and then laid down on the stage while the song is going and we're like what is up with this guy and then he disappeared off stage and we're like looking at each other in the middle of the song so then you know we just tried to sing as best we could yeah. and then he would run back through the stage sing for about you know three or four lines and then he would take off again with people chasing him it was so crazy but that was you know like necessity you had to step up and and get through the gig oh yeah that's funny so then i was in uh oh i have an acid story okay it's pretty funny now it's funny yeah the acid stories are never funny at the time but in hindsight they're hilarious yeah i used to take that stuff well there's there's a couple of them 
One was I took it at school. Oh, my God. And then, you know, we stayed around till 1 o'clock. We were auditioning this band. We were auditioning for our first gig. Really? And uh, I forgot all about it. So, <laughs> I, you know, about 1 o'clock, my English teacher's walking three or four feet off the ground. Wow. And uh, English class would be a rough one to go to. It was time to leave. So we went over to this, this guy's house, and, you know, we're fiddling around. And it, I think it was Orange Sunshine. It was pretty strong huh. stuff. And, uh, you know, this kid's mowing the lawn, and it looks like a tiger. The lawnmower looks like a tiger. So <laughs> what? I had forgotten that we were supposed to audition for our first gig at my house. And really? And I'm, like, frying on acid. And uh, I get home late, and there's, like, 40 kids in my backyard. What? Waiting, waiting to hear me play. And you're tripping balls at that yeah. point. Yeah. I go in, and I eat dinner really quick, and my mom's looking at me funny. And I'm like, oh, I'm busted. So then, uh, yeah, we went out. I couldn't get through any. I couldn't finish any songs. Wow. But we got the gig, and we went. That's amazing. How did you get the gig? <laughs> I don't know. I just had to tell them what was going on. And I, I guess the rest of the band yeah. carried you on that one. Yeah. That's nutty. I, I'm not one of those people that can, can play like that. Like, for me, anything I've done in, in the past, whether it be, you know, weed or alcohol or whatever, I just don't function. So yeah. I've kind of learned that early on. Oh, yeah. My neck was like, there's oh, yeah. bending back for miles with notes coming off and it's rainbows <laughs> and the whole thing. But uh, another, I can't even imagine. Another really quick story. I was 16 and we played a battle of the bands at Downey High School. Okay. And we were okay. Right. And, we, and I was the youngest guy. I was 16. The singer was like 21, 22. And so we get in this battle of bands and the band that won was... Uh, Larry Cheeseman's band, and he had the, the Ziggy Stardust makeup. Of course. So we had this singer that got the first promotional Kiss album. Oh. And nobody knew who Kiss was. So we huh. decided to dress up like Kiss with the makeup. <laughs> Everybody hated us. Well, of course. They didn't have any, any context. They're throwing stuff at us. <laughs> really? Yeah. But we, somehow we got third place in this. Even with people like throwing yeah, shit. We got third place in this, in this thing. And, uh, so this kid comes up to me and he and that I hadn't seen since grammar school. He gives me this LSD on a candy heart. What? And I just I'm I'm, I'm not going to take this stuff. Right. So I put it in my pocket. So we got our third place money. We went and got a case of beer and we get you know. Mm-hmm. So my bedroom at the time was in the garage where my the washing machines are. Okay. I come home from school the next day early and my mom's looking at me funny, and she's like, I thought she knew I did school. Well, my mom's doing laundry, and it was on one of those Valentine hearts with the sayings on oh, it. Shit. My mom ate this. <laughs> Get out. So we had to babysit my mom for quite a while. Wow. And How I, much trouble were you in at that point? Oh, I thought my dad was going to kill me, but well, yeah. he was pretty, you know. My girlfriend's mom was a nurse. She well, came over and checked everything it? out. Yeah, I know. She <laughs> said she put it in her mouth, and it tasted bitter, but, you know, she threw spit it out. Oh, well, at least she didn't eat the whole thing, but damn. Like, yeah. No, she did. She swallowed it. She oh ate the whole thing. God. It was like a four-way hit of window pane. Oh or my god! I all I know is I got kids, and if I found something in any of their pockets, I would instantly like pour bleach on my hands because they're disgusting. Kids are so gross. <laughs> yeah, I cannot even fathom that she would eat that. Yeah. But wow, I guess she never ate anything out of <laughs> out of the laundry pile again. No. Oh my god. <laughs> she. Was, my mom was straight laced. You know, wow. Rock and roll was the devil. That is the coolest story I've heard in a long time. That is so fun. My face hurts. I'm smiling so much. That's awesome. 
Oh my god. Yeah. That's that has to be like made into a TV show or like something straight out of like that 70s show. That is incredible. Yeah, How and then funny. I was in a band after that. I think I was 17, I started playing clubs. Well, yeah, I mean that's about the time, right? Yeah, and we were playing frat, frat parties. Oh yeah. And then we were playing uh first couple clubs I played were uh per 52, Pier 52 in Hermosa Beach. Right. Gazaris back when they used to pay bands. Oh yeah. Is it still there? Yeah, the club is there. Is it still there? Okay. It was the key club. I don't know what it is now. Oh, okay. So it's it's not still Gazaris. No. Yeah. It hasn't I, been I was going to say, I thought that thing's been gone for it's a while. It's gone through some changes. Right. But yeah, we played covers, actually, and it wasn't pay to play. We actually got paid. And you worked your way up from the top stage to the right. bottom stage. So we got down to the bottom stage. Oh, that's great, man. And I was uh, like 18. Pier 52, that was kind of like my first club gig. And I had to stand in the parking lot because I was 17 on breaks. Yes. I've done some of those. Yeah. That's so, funny. Yeah. What would you say is your best or your favorite gig you ever played? Man, I don't know. I, it's hard, huh? Yeah. Because it, it's like, is it the biggest gig? Is it the most intimate gig? Was it the gig where I dropped acid? You know. Like, <laughs> I actually, I never took acid on gigs. Well, maybe, how about this? Is there one that was like a nightmare? Because I know every musician has at least one of those. Like the worst gig you ever went on. I know there was one we played a party and we were all we had all taken magic mushrooms. Okay. And we thought we sounded great. Of course. And we pretty much sucked. <laughs> Don't you wish you had a recording of that gig so you could listen back? Yeah, actually I do. <laughs> How funny would that be? Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, all right, so you that was probably your worst gig. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, maybe we'll come back to the Well, I had some gig. interesting gigs cuz I was living in Northern California. Okay. We used to play on the Hoopa Indian Reservation all the time. A lot of good gigs that way, but especially you know, now. We started out at the Hoopa uh, Civic Center, and Merv George, who was Indian, retired. So he he, I was in the band. I think the band was called Wild Hair at the time. You know, it was the eighties, early eighties, right, right. And because uh, all our girlfriends were hairdressers, and uh, oh, that's funny. We started out at the Civic Center. And the Indian at first the Indian guys didn't like us at all, but they we played the Warrior, that song the Warrior, right. and they liked that. But we played about three or four gigs for these guys, and they got their own like building. But we mm -hmm. get to this gig, and the building is not finished. It's just a tin building with the doors cut out. Right. The roof is like completely open. Huh. And there's all these wild, drunk route, you know, rodeo right. Indians and stuff. And one guy with a 357 who's also <laughs> drunk for security. Of course. So we never knew if we were going to get paid or what was going to happen at those gigs. But we got out. We got paid well, and we got, we got out. Man, how that's changed. Like, some of the best gigs now are on reservations. Yeah. You know, or at the Indian casinos. Yeah. Like, some of the best-paying gigs where they treat you the best are the Indian casinos. Yeah, this is way before casinos. Yeah, now there's yeah, a bunch man. of Indian casinos. So, man, what's the, what was – do you remember the first song that you learned to play? Like, maybe not the first song. Cause I don't way, remember the band. Okay. But um, I think the first riff I learned was Dirty Water. Okay. Bum, 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 bum. Right. Yeah. Right, right, right. From uh, the kid across the street's uncle. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah. That was my first lick. Yeah. Um, so what are you doing gig-wise now? You're still playing music, right? I'm subbing a lot. Doing a lot of subbing? Yeah. 
Um, I think that's kind of a testament to how to, how good of a player you are that you can just kind of drop into just about any situation and and uh, do well on a gig. I mean, I've, I've known you for probably 10 years at this point, uh, maybe more. And uh, I always would go down to the Mission Tobacco Lounge when you guys were hosting the, the jam, the open jam or the blues jam. Um, and I always looked forward to getting up when you were still up there. Like I hated if I had to go up with some other players. Like I always wanted to play when you and Brett were on stage because um, I felt like the, the level of playing was always higher, um, more inspiring. Yeah, I'm still playing with Brett. Just not that we don't play out as much as I'd like, but well, play with Brett. I play. Um, I'm an alternate with the band uh, Hot Rocks out in Palm Springs. Okay, they play at Las Casuelas. Uh, you play out there a lot, uh, Palm Springs. Not as not a lot, but I play. Yeah, I hear it's good a pretty gig. good scene for for uh, you know mu- working musicians. Well, yeah. it's a one way. It's a it's it's. One of the few steady money gigs that's still left. Right, right. Like Mark, the bass player from that band, has been playing that gig six nights a week. They have two a day band and a what? night. He's been paying it six nights a week for twenty four years. That's crazy. And uh, then they have the day band and the night band. And some, what they do is some a lot of the guys from the day band, they'll do doubles. Oh wow! So they'll play in the night as well. They'll play you know six days and three nights. You know that's pretty impressive yeah like that's a full-on job right there yeah my friend larry gutierrez who got me in on that gig um he plays six days a week sometimes he just i just talked to him last night he, he played uh 12 days straight and it's pretty good money i mean it's 150 a gig well and that's pretty decent a week, yeah and here's the crazy thing like that's what you got paid to do gigs in like the 70s like the right. pay rate has not increased much in forty years, or right. you know, so it's it's definitely uh, a little disheartening when you kind of put that in perspective. Like the clubs have not really stepped it up, and and you still have musicians who will play for fifty bucks a night, you know, or fifty bucks a yeah. gig or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, man, I it's it's kind of the only industry I can think of where the pay has not gotten much better. If anything, it's gotten worse. Because um, you get like 300 bucks for a band at this point to yeah. do three, four hours. Yeah, and a lot of the bands I'm subbing with, you know, there's a $300 base pay and there's four of us, but we might make 150 or $200 in right. tips. Right. So we're depending on the tips. You know, like Cat Reed, I play with him. He always plays around Sunset Beach. Okay. I sub for Danny Ott in that, in that band. And uh, they always get really good tips. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's almost like pay. like waiting tables in a sense. Yeah, like yeah. you almost make as much or more out of the tip jar, uh, and and if you don't work the tip jar, you're not going to see as big a you know big a cut there. So yeah, it's it's kind of rough, you know. Yeah, uh, I I know quite a few working musicians who do that almost exclusively that and and lessons, and uh, man, my heart goes out to them because they are hustling to make ends meet. Now, coming back to, to what you do during the day, you um, what, what would you say your title is? You're not a luthier because that's someone who makes guitars, right? Right. I'm getting more into that. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend. We're starting to make Rickenbackers and stuff. I'm a repair tech, I okay. guess. Do a lot of repairs. Uh, did repairs at Music Mics for at least 10 years. I've been doing repairs since 1981. Yeah. How did that start? Um, 
Because that's a pretty specialized I started out industry. when I was like 10 or 12. My parents would get me a guitar that wasn't quite what I wanted. Right. So I'd be like, they were, my mom would be freaking out. Of I'd course. get a brand new guitar. I'd be tearing it apart, yep. <laughs> putting different pickups in it. Right. And doing that. And Most then, people don't get that. Yeah. It's like if you, you buy the guitar, that's how it's supposed to be. It's like, no, no, I'm going to put a new pickup in this and I'm going to change the tuners on it and, you know, yeah, put a different bridge and yeah. Yeah. So I started doing that at 10. I started doing repairs with uh, John Taggart out in Las Vegas. Okay. He's a good friend of mine. We had a band in, in 81. We're still really good friends. He just gave me a Les Paul the other day that he made. He's now working with Fleetwood Mac. Really? He's the bass tech for uh, John McVie. You know, a lot of guys doing that, they kind of start out doing repair work at like music shops and they end up going on tour. Well, he's a great luthier. Yeah. And uh, he builds, he sells a lot of guitars. He made three or four Les Pauls for Waddy Wachtel. He just made a Telecaster for uh, Mike Campbell. Okay. And, uh, you know, he started out, he was in Vegas. He was running sound and he was building guitars. He was doing repairs and Bette Midler came through and she needed a tech. She didn't want to pay for rooms for her tech. So John got in there, and he met her manager. And her manager handled Stevie Nicks and all these other people. So he just kind of worked his way up through all these channels. And now he he goes out with John McVie. And he's and John McVie only plays one bass. And John built and John really my friend John Taggart built it. He he's got one instrument on tour. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. How do you well, not have a... Well, night. I, I, he might have a backup. I was going to say. But, like, you know, he'll play the John ba- John's, the, the John built all night long. Right. Oh, no. See, that's cool. Yeah. I thought you meant that he only takes one bass with him. Like, no, I'm that's sure a, he has That's a few insanity. More. I'm sure he has a few more. Yeah, I would hope so. Yeah. I would hope so. So then, scared me for a second. So I started doing some stuff with John, who did Downey Music, and then I, I did repairs at Calvano's Music. And then I moved to Northern California, and I met Steve Helgeson, which is Moonstone Guitars. Okay. And he's a master craftsman. Right. And uh, I started working with him, and he taught me how to do refrets and different things. So I was up there, and I was, you know, it's really hard to find work up in Northern California, in Eureka. Well, I imagine. Yeah. I was up there, you know. Well, there's nothing up there. It's, It's like trees and such. Yeah. Um, beautiful, so, but I mean, so, you know, I had my son, you know, I, uh, my son was a year and a half when I moved up there. So I started teaching at the local music store and then I started doing repairs. Okay. I, I started at Maxim's music and then I went over to T street music and I was teaching at Maxim's and T street and doing repairs. And, and then Steve started showing me some stuff. So that was good. And then I decided to come back to uh, Southern California in 93. So I lived up there for 10 years. Okay. And I went to... What brought you back? A 21-year-old Swedish blonde. Well, that'll do it. (laughs) I mean, I had a feeling it was something along those lines. But, you know, I actually went to GIT for a year. Oh, okay. That was cool because all I had done up there was teach guitar and, and, and play gigs. I had a house band for like... Eight years up there that paid pretty good. Right. I mean, we were making, uh, we were playing three nights a week, and I was paying my guys three fifty each in, in eighty six for the the three nights or one night. No, for three nights. Okay, I was gonna that's say that's not bad though. No, that's pretty good at the time. Yeah. You know, that's that's better. So, but than everything kind of went down when the point one drunk driving law went into effect. Right. All the clubs started, you know, pulling back. Right. And everything and. 
the fishing industry, the logging industry got kind of slow. I decided to come down and go to GIT for teaching purposes. So how was that? It was all right. Yeah. It's a little too competitive for me. Yeah, I hear that. It I hear was good for, like that too. It was good for uh, for teaching purposes because I learned how to read more. Okay. And you know, learned stuff. I learned a lot of jazz skills that I don't use because I'm not a right, jazz player. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, what would you say is your your favorite kind of music to play? Um, probably uh, classic rock, blues rock. Okay, blues. I mean, that's what I know you from is is like the blues uh, jams and whatnot, and, yeah. and doing that stuff. Um, I but was I just pretty curious. much played everything. Right, I played right. disco when disco was just came out. Like that some was people, the only gigs. I could get right, right. Some people, that's the thing. Is like, you like guys like you can play anything, and you probably have played in some kind of band that plays just about every genre there is. Um, but it's like guys like John Five. It's like he goes out and he shreds with Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson. But what he loves to play is like chicken picking country guitar, you know. But he's known for this other stuff. So I was curious if if there was uh, some sort of musical skeletons in your closet that you know. So. Yeah. So basically, I came back and I went to the school, and then I was playing in a country band because that's where all the gigs were. Okay. And, and uh, but I was a single parent. Right. I was being a courier during the day. And and uh, I really needed some security for my son, so right. I took the job at Fender. So I started working at Fender. Oh, okay. At yeah. the like the assembly shop or the custom shop or. I started out as a in final. Okay. As a tester. Gotcha. And uh, I worked there. I, I worked there from worked there from in January 1996 is when I started. And then we kind of formed a band with my supervisor and some other people. And so I wasn't playing out as much, but right. I was playing. First six months, I was playing four nights a week and working 65 hours a week. Oh my Fender, god, man, it was brutal. Well, I hear those Fender bands play a lot, especially when it gets to be like Nam Show and whatnot. I don't know if that mm-hmm. still goes on. Um, but I used to always hear about you know the Fender bands, the, all the guys that worked there would put together. Oh yeah, that goes back to the worst gig scenario. Okay, here's my worst gig. I knew I, it would come up. I, I knew was you playing at it. Fender. I was at Fender and I worked a full day. I had to get there at like four, four or five in the morning, and I had the green done on this tattoo the night before. So night the night before. Oh wow. And uh, I, uh, so we go and and we're supposed to do this jam session. Okay. With uh, Dale Breckenfield from Artist Relations. So it was like a Nam Jam thing? Yeah, it was for uh, the uh, Fender sister company, Arbiter, okay. out of England, which they made uh, light light consoles okay. for lighting. So we get there. When I get to the gig, I find out that like six months ahead, Jerry Donahue and uh, Will Ray gave a tape for us to learn these tunes for the oh, Helicasters. And basically my supervisor and the, and the artist relations guy, they just threw the tape away. Oh, it was no. mainly my supervisor because he didn't want to bother playing with it, playing with us, learning the song. So I'm like totally burnt out because I, right. Yeah. I'm at the Hollywood Hyatt and you know, Gary Hoey's there. Of course. The Helicasters are there. And so they get up on stage with us. And uh, it was, <laughs> they start playing these tunes, man. And you can't wing these tunes. No. There's no way you can wing No, tele- no. And so Jerry Donahue, Will Ray starts out soloing, and it's all instrumental. And Jerry Donahue's being really nice. 
and he's trying to give us the changes and he's trying to keep it together right. and everything. Right. And and Will Ray is just totally pissed off. Well, yeah. He's pissed. You and had six months, man. Why didn't you learn him? You know, <laughs> I didn't even know about. No, it. I know, I know, but that's uh, got to be what he was thinking. Like, so Will I, Ray comes up. Jerry starts soloing into his part. So Will Ray starts turns it into a puppet show, and he starts giving us the changes, like mocking us and giving us the changes, and he's giving us the wrong changes oh, on shit. purpose. <laughs> and he's just like, and, and I'm up there just sweating bullets, you know. And uh, that was my worst gig. Yeah, dude. And that's... he was fuming. Will Ray had smoke coming out of his ears. <laughs> Gary Hoey was really cool. He came out and we just jammed blues and stuff. Right. And At that point, just he was really three nice. chords. Yeah. Keep it yeah. simple. Yeah. So. Wow, that sucks. That's like a bad like nightmare where you're on stage and everybody's playing and you don't know the changes to the song. Like, that's terrible. Yeah. Like, that stuff is... Uh... I've been in many of those situations, and, and it's always awful. Um, so when you were learning how to play, was there somebody that like you had as like a mentor of sorts? Yeah. A few, a few guys like older kids up the street there. Uh, there's a kid named, uh, Ronnie Miller, who was great, man. He knew all the slide parts and all the Dwayne Allman stuff. Oh, wow. And he could play it really well, you know, and there was like Dwayne, uh, Ronnie Miller, Lucas Beato. There's a guy named Joe Levy. Showed me my first D chord. Right. You know? But they were they were probably four or five years older than us, yeah. You know, and they, they so and then one of the guys was John. John was in that band too. So later on, I was in the band with John, who works with Fleetwood Mac now. Oh yeah, yeah. So I ended up in that band. Those two guys quit, Ronnie and Lucas, and then uh, we, they had another guitar player, and that turned into the band that dressed like Kiss. That's so funny. That story. So that was a band called Bucky Plum. Bucky Plum. Yeah, that's a pretty good name. And that was. Uh, you know, I was 16 at the time. and uh, Is there a story behind that band name? Not that I know of. Okay. <laughs> a lot of times there's some goofy-ass names that come up, and there's usually like either a really good or a really terrible story behind the two. Yeah, um, yeah and the repair stuff, I'd say it would be John Taggart, Steve Helgeson. And then when I started working at Fender, I was doing all those gigs, and I was playing, working all those hours. I started getting tendonitis really bad. Oh, and so I didn't want to go on workman's comp at the time because I was a single parent. So right. I, I convinced them that I knew enough about repair. So they let, they, I did repair work on the production line. Oh, that's hilarious. So I did repair work for about a year or so. And then I, uh, by 2002, the vice president left and they, they brought up the guy from uh, Mexico. And they're like, we were doing like 27 guitars a day and it was killing me. Oh, like, shit. Now you're going to do 38 guitars a day because they put us in groups of five. Right. And I used to play the tobacco lounge, right? On right. Thursdays till 1 or 2 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And the old system, there's like a conveyor belt with 25 testers, right? And we're all pissed. We don't want to be there. Of course. And if you piss anybody off the day before, because we're all like, right. Yeah, it was like a war zone in there. And uh, so get there in the morning, and I was in the back. So if you piss anybody off, your guitar goes on this belt, and it goes down the belt. They can easily, as it's going down the belt, hit it with a hammer or whatever, right. and then it doesn't count. Right. You know? So. Oh, that's ugly. So we used to have to do 24 in guitars in an eight-hour day, 27 in a nine-hour day, and sometimes I'd work like 17 days straight. Oh, shit. You know, work like 70-hour weeks and more. And uh, 
they still wanted us to keep up those numbers. So I started getting tendonitis. But that's not changed. Like they're still having to do so many guitars a day. Yeah, I think they backed it down a little bit. Right. So I uh, I actually left Fender in 2002. I had to quit because it was like, do I want to keep playing or do I want to? Right. And at the time, Rick Calderia, you know Rick Calderia? He's the sound yes. guy for Romano. Yes. He was the manager for Whitaker Music. He goes, well, I can guarantee you 40 students a week if you if you come and teach. So I went and started teaching at Whitaker Music in Corona. Huh. And there used to be a lot. That's right. Like, that was 2002, and I taught there till 2005 when they lost their lease. And I peaked at like 60, 70 students a week. Damn. I wasn't, uh, yeah, in 2005, I was making a lot of money teaching guitar, but it was all beginners. Right. And I wasn't able to gig. And all I did was teach seven days a week. Oh. Beginners, my chops went oh, of course. way down. But, you know, the tendonitis was hard on them any, right, anyway. Right, right. Did you enjoy teaching? Are you still doing teaching? I'm, I only have a few students. A now. few. Yeah, I'm kind of burnt out on it. I tried to do the guitar teaching for beginners, and I just I don't have the patience for it. Yeah. Like, what was the hardest part of the the teaching gig for you? You're just kind of sitting there in the room and get you know the kids that don't get it. Right. You know. That's hard because they don't want to be there. I think the hardest kid I had he was kind of a. I don't know if he was. ADD, or he was just like not disciplined at all. But this kid would just like bounce off the walls as yeah. soon as his mom dropped him off. It was right. like babysitting, right? Uh, babysitting, you know. Mom just needed a half hour without him. <laughs> That's what you were. Yeah, it's like I just I can't be with him right now. Teach him guitar or don't, whatever. Just keep an eye on him for half an hour. <laughs> yeah, and he was like crazy. Oh man, bouncing off the walls and just. For me, the thing that killed me is I would I would teach a kid something, they would go away, they would come back a week later, and they hadn't done anything with it. Like they hadn't tried it. Right. The only time they're playing is when they're in the room. Right. I couldn't do it. Forcing them to to, it's like you're forcing them to play. Right. They don't even want to be there. Right. That's yeah. That's what I hated. And that's what killed me. And that's it was very short lived for me. It's like I that's why I I chose not to be a band director. Because I, I was a music major for about a year. And the reality of that situation hit me. I'm like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, so I have mad respect for anybody that continues to give music lessons. Because I, I know quite how a while. that can be. And it paid pretty good. Well, it does, for yeah. sure. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's, ha- it's, it's, it's... You can't really make a living doing it anymore. It's harder now. It's really hard because everybody has, you know youtube and yeah everything is out there for free or you can sign up to play to learn from this pro guy right you know or online lessons online yeah you know i i find that there are fewer up-and-coming musicians like fewer kids are learning to play or at least for the last five or six years yeah it's coming back around it seems Uh, i see more kids carrying guitars but for about five or six years i never saw a kid with an instrument And, and uh I'm starting to see him again, like it, because I work at the high school. I'll see him at lunch, jamming together, and you know, playing this and that. But uh, man, it was it was a little barren for a while. So hopefully that is kind of coming back around, and people care about playing music again. Yeah, there's um, some good kids coming out of the Midwest and stuff. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it, kind of all over the world. Yeah. There's a lot of young players who are starting to do stuff. Monsters. And then, yeah, absolutely. Super talented. And then kids their age are starting to see them and go, oh, that's pretty cool. Maybe I'll pick up a guitar. So that's my hope is that, you know, we'll, we'll not completely run out of musicians, you know, that actually know how to play. Yeah, I think it's coming back. Um, I'd like to hope. But, you know, yeah. I always – my whole philosophy when I was playing and trying to play – I don't, I don't like working for other people. I like working for myself. Well, yeah. So I always tried to do like at least two or three things that made money. So right. I would do lessons, play right. gigs, and I started learning how to repair guitars out of necessity just because I right. didn't want to go punch the time clock. Right. A lot of musicians are that way. Yeah. Like they just – they cannot function in the nine to five, you know, put on a tie and go work. That's just not for them, you know. I, that's the reason I went into teaching. I mean, I enjoyed it and I, I did some stuff, but it was like, I've got summers, I've got weekends, I've got nights and holidays all off so I can go play music. You know, if I need to go on tour, I can schedule it during the summer, during spring break, during winter break. Um, so I totally understand that. Um, yeah. You know, right now I really enjoyed, I'm really enjoying doing the repairs, especially for myself. Why is that? Uh, what I, about I, it? I like working for myself, first of all. Well, yeah. And I really enjoy repair work. It's just, you get this guitar and, you know, it's all screwed up. Especially, I've been restoring guitars lately. That seems like fun. Yeah. I've got a 61 Les Paul uh, Jr. That's G-shaped. Right. That I just redid. I bought it from this kid. It was just a neck and the and the body. I bought it for 200 bucks and mm -hmm. then I... Repainted it and re-put it all back together. It's 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 in the room. I think you saw it when you. Were yeah, there. no. It's and every time I come in here, there's beautiful guitars in here. Um, I I wonder because you see all these guitars come through. What's your favorite instrument that you have to play? Of mine? Yeah. What's your go-to? This is a little bit for the gearheads out there. Oh man. I know. I mean, you've seen. I've brought it. You know, got like a dozen eight. guitars in here. You've seen how many I have. Yeah. I'm sure you've got quite a few. Overall, yeah, I think I have about 16 electrics. I just redid that 61 S Les Paul Junior SG. Right. And I like that a lot. I have a 57 Les Paul Historic mm -hmm. that has a real 59 P uh, P90 in it. Really. Guts. And then I have the 59 guitar. I bought the guitar from. The pickups from Tom Cliff. He had like, okay. he had like, routed this Les Paul Junior out for humbuckers in 1972 How poorly. Funny. Well, yeah, yeah, and just kind of like uh, he was like 19. Put some holes in it. Yeah, big holes. Yeah, and so he sold me the pickup for the guitar, and then later on he ended up just giving me the guitar. So huh. I plugged the holes and then made them all right and turned it into a, a special. It's a '59. That's cool. And I painted it white, and then I painted it pale and blue. So would you say your Gibsons are your favorites then? Uh, you... It depends on the gig. I, for me too. And I, you know, I just put some TV Jones. I I'm, I can get TV Jones pickups now for a good price. Right. I just put some TV Jones uh, Tele pickups in my excellent pickups. Yeah, absolutely. I had uh, I had TV Jones classics, and I have one of the sixty one twenty Junior Gretches. It's so it's smaller, so it's right. darker. It didn't twang as much as I right. wanted. Right. Right. So I was just at the NAM show, and I talked to TV Jones, and I put the magnetrons in, and they sound great. I've definitely been partial to my tellies for the last couple of years. 
uh, I was always a Strat guy for probably 20 years. That's all I really liked. Um, but man, I found a couple of tellies that I just, that's the first thing I grab when I walk out to the studio. Like I'm going to pick that up and play. Yeah. For me, uh, it depends on the gig. I use, I play a lot of Gibsons when I play with Brad. Right. And then I have, well, a, I'm sure I have a really a nice strat. 335 that, uh, I don't take out much. Well, I mean, that's the, Those, the it danger. It sounds great. It's a big guitar. I, I've got like six Les Balls. Yeah. I've got the very first 60s Relic Strat. Oh. I traded a 62 pick guard with 64 pickups for it straight across for it really? when I was working at Fender. Nice. Yeah. So I have that, and uh, I have another Strat that I made when I was working at Fender. A couple Strats, a couple Tellies, a couple Gretches. Right. Yeah. So... Well, cool, man. We're we're kind of running toward the end of this. Um, so, if you could jam with any person, past, present, or future, who would that be? Wow, I know it's a big question because it isn't necessarily your favorite player. It might be somebody that you think would be the most fun to jam with. Well, Mike Campbell. I'm a big Mike Campbell fan. Right. So that would definitely be Tom my present. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's with Fleetwood Mac now. Right. And now he, the dirty knobs are taking right doing their thing. Uh he would probably present that would be the guy I'd want to play with. I mean, I really like Jeff Beck. Yeah. You know. Hendrix of course. Right, right. Yeah. I don't know if I'd want to jam with Hendrix. I'd be too intimidated. Right. <laughs> and, and it would be so loud. Yeah. That I don't know that I would enjoy it. You know, so that's yeah. that, that's why I asked that to, to guitar players, especially like, who would you like to play with? Because the greatest guitar players aren't necessarily the ones I would want to play with. Yeah. Um, Mike Campbell seems like a pretty normal, nice guy. Right. Right. So, you know, it'd be fun. It's somebody that you could just play with and have a good time. Right. You know? Right. Well, I think we probably should uh, wrap this up. Um, I, I definitely uh, want to thank you for taking some time out and let me come out and invade your space and. Uh, do this here episode uh this has been yet another episode of fix it in the mix uh if you enjoyed this episode by all means um, like us on facebook and absolutely tell a friend thank you greg welcome and tell them about music service center music service center in riverside 6630 Fix It in the Mix is recorded at Inland Blue Studios. Remember to subscribe to Fix It in the Mix on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by SpinWiz Comics. Please go and visit SpinWizComics.com. This episode of the Nerd Life Crisis brought to you by IB Comics. IB Comics, the home of great creator-driven stories for people of all ages, including Legba's Juke Joint. The first book of a nine-book series is available now and tells the story of American music from the blues to the present. The series examines the values of American society and for what we as people are willing to trade our soul. The book has been called Smart and Clever by Mark Wade of The Flash and Superman and Raw, Honest, and Profoundly Human by Stephen Frank, the creator of Silver and the animator on The Iron Giant. The book is available now at www.ibcomics.com. IB Comics, the home of great stories.